0: Section 26 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards, Section 26 The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, Part 1. Romans 3 19 That every mouth may be stopped. The main subject of the doctrinal part of this epistle is the free grace of God in the salvation of men by Christ Jesus, especially as it appears in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the more clearly to evince this doctrine and show the reason of it, the apostle in the first place establishes that point that no flesh living can be justified by the deeds of the law, and to prove it, he is very large and particular in showing that all mankind, not only the Gentiles but Jews, are under sin, and so under the condemnation of the law, which is what he insists from the beginning of the epistle to this place. He first begins with the Gentiles, and in the first chapter shows that they are under sin by setting forth the exceeding corruptions and horrid wickedness that overspread the Gentile world. And then through the second chapter and the former part of this third chapter to the text and following verse, He shows the same of the Jews that they also are in the same circumstances with the Gentiles in this regard. They had a high thought of themselves because they were God's covenant people and circumcised and the children of Abraham. They despised the Gentiles as polluted, condemned, and accursed, but looked on themselves on account of their external privileges and ceremonial and moral righteousness as a pure and holy people and the children of God as the Apostle observes in the second chapter. It was therefore strange doctrine to them that they also were unclean and guilty in God's sight and under the condemnation and curse of the law. The Apostle does therefore, on account of their strong prejudices against such doctrine, the more particularly insists upon it, and shows that they are no better than the Gentiles, and as in the ninth verse of this chapter, quote, what then, are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, quote. And, to convince them of it, he then produces certain passages out of their own law, or the Old Testament, to whose authority they pretend a great regard, from the ninth verse to our text. And it may be observed that the Apostle first cites certain passages to prove that all mankind are corrupt, verses ten to twelve. Quote, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no not one. Secondly, the passages he cites next are to prove, not that only are all corrupt, but each one wholly corrupt, as it were, all over unclean, from the crown of the head to the soles of his feet. And therefore several particular parts of the body are mentioned, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, verses 13 to 15, Their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. And thirdly, he quotes other passages to show that each one is not only all over corrupt, but corrupt to a desperate degree, by affirming the most pernicious tendency of their wickedness. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And then by denying all goodness or godliness in them, and the way of peace have they not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes." And then, lest the Jews think these passages of their law do not concern them, and only the Gentiles are intended in them, the Apostle shows in the text not only that they are not exempt, but that they especially must be understood. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. By those that are under the law is meant the Jews, and the Gentiles by those that are without law, as appears by the twelfth verse of the preceding chapter there is a special reason to understand the law as speaking to and of them to whom it was immediately given. And therefore the Jews would be unreasonable in exempting themselves, and if we examine the places of the Old Testament whence these passages are taken, we shall see plainly that special respect is had to the wickedness of the people of that nation in every one of them, so that the law shuts all up in universal and desperate wickedness, that every mouth may be stopped, the mouths of the Jews as well as of the Gentiles, notwithstanding all those privileges by which they were distinguished from the Gentiles. The things that the law says are sufficient to stop the mouths of all mankind in two respects. One, to stop them from boasting of their righteousness as the Jews are wont to do, as the apostle observes in the 23rd verse of the preceding chapter, that the apostle has respect to stopping their mouths in this respect appears by the 27th verse of the context, where is boasting then it is excluded? The law stops our mouths from making any plea for life, or the favor of God, or any positive good from our own righteousness. 2. To stop them from making any excuse for ourselves, or objection against the execution of the sentence of the law, or the infliction of the punishment that it threatens. That it is intended, appears by the words immediately following, that all the world may become guilty before God, that is, that they may appear to be guilty, and stand convicted before God, and justly liable to the condemnation of his law as guilty of death, according to the Jewish way of speaking. And thus the apostle proves that no flesh can be justified in God's sight by the deeds of the law, as he draws the conclusion in the following verse, and so prepares the way for establishing the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, which he proceeds to do in the following part of the chapter and of the epistle. Doctrine It is just with God eternally to cast off and destroy sinners, for this is the punishment which the law condemns to. The truth of this doctrine may appear by the joint consideration of two things, viz., man's sinfulness, and God's sovereignty. 1. It appears from the consideration of man's sinfulness, and that whether we consider the infinitely evil nature of all sin, or how much sin men are guilty of. 1. If we consider the infinite evil and heinousness of sin in general, it is not unjust in God to inflict what punishment is deserved, because the very notion of deserving any punishment is that it may be justly inflicted. A deserved punishment and a just punishment are the same thing. To say that one deserves such a punishment, and yet to say that he does not justly deserve it, is a contradiction, and if he justly deserves it, then it may be justly inflicted. Every crime or fault deserves a greater or less punishment in proportion as the crime itself is greater or less. If any fault deserves punishment, then so much the greater the fault so much the greater is the punishment deserved. The faulty nature of any thing is the formal ground and reason of its desert of punishment, and therefore the more any thing hath of this nature, the more punishment it deserves. And therefore the terribleness of the degree of punishment, let it never be so terrible, is no argument against the justice of it, if the proportion does not hold between the heinousness of the crime and the dreadfulness of the punishment so that if there be any such thing as a fault infinitely heinous, it will follow that it is just to inflict a punishment for it that is infinitely dreadful. A crime is more or less heinous, according as we are, under greater or less obligations to the contrary. This is self-evident, because it is herein that the criminalness or faultiness of anything consists, that it is contrary to what we are obliged or bound to, or what ought to be in us so the faultiness of one being hating another is in proportion to his obligation to love him. The crime of one being despising and casting contempt on another is proportionably more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligations to honor him. The fault of disobeying another is greater or less as any one is under greater or less obligations to obey him, and therefore if there be any being that we are under infinite obligations to love and honor and obey, the contrary towards him must be infinitely faulty. Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority, for that is the very meaning of the words. When we say any one is very lovely, it is the same as to say that he is one very much to be loved, or if we say such a one is more honorable than another, The meaning of the words is, that he is one that we are more obliged to honor. If we say any one has great authority over us, it is the same to say that he has great right to our subjection and obedience. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellency and beauty. To have infinite excellency and beauty is the same thing as to have infinite loveliness. He is a being of infinite greatness, majesty and glory and therefore he is infinitely honorable. He is infinitely exalted above the greatest potentates of the earth and highest angels in heaven, and therefore he is infinitely more honorable than they. His authority over us is infinite, and the ground of his right to our obedience is infinitely strong, for he is infinitely worthy to be obeyed himself, and we have an absolute, universal, and infinite dependence upon him so that sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. Nothing is more agreeable to the common sense of mankind than that sins committed against any one must be proportionably heinous to the dignity of the being offended and abused. It is also agreeable to the word of God, First Samuel 2.25, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him i.e. shall judge him and inflict a finite punishment, such as finite judges can inflict. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? This was the aggravation of sin that made Joseph afraid of it. Genesis 39. nine. How shall I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? It was the aggravation of David's sin, in comparison of which he esteemed all others as nothing, because they were infinitely exceeded by it. Psalm 51, 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. The eternity of the punishment of ungodly men renders it infinite, and it renders it no more than infinite, and therefore renders it no more than proportionable to the heinousness of what they are guilty of. If there be any evil or faultiness in sin against God, there is certainly infinite evil for if it be any fault at all, it is an infinite aggravation, viz., that it is against an infinite object. If it be ever so small upon other accounts, yet if it be anything, it has one infinite dimension, and so is an infinite evil, which may be illustrated by this. If we suppose a thing to have infinite length, but no breadth or thickness, a mere mathematical line, it is nothing, but if it have any breadth and thickness, Though never so small an infinite length, the quantity of it is infinite. It exceeds the quantity of anything, however broad, thick, and long, wherein these dimensions are all finite. So that the objections made against the infinite punishment of sin from the necessity, or rather previous certainty, of the futurition of sin, arising from the unavoidable original corruption of nature, if they argue anything, argue against any faultiness at all. For if this necessity or certainty leaves any evil at all in sin, that fault must be infinite by reason of the infinite object. But every such objector as would argue from hence that there is no fault at all in sin, confutes himself and shows his own insincerity in his objection. For at the same time that he objects that man's acts are necessary and that this kind of necessity is inconsistent with the faultiness in the act, His own practice shows that he does not believe what he objects to be true. Otherwise, why does he at all blame men? Or why are such persons at all displeased with men for abuse, injurious, and ungrateful acts towards them? Whatever they pretend, by this they show that indeed they do believe that there is no necessity in man's acts that are inconsistent with blame. And if their objection be this, that this previous certainty is by God's own ordering, and that where God orders an antecedent certainty of acts, he transfers all the fault from the actor on himself. Their practice shows that at the same time they do not believe this, but fully believe the contrary, for when they are abused by men, they are displeased with men, and not with God only. The light of nature teaches all mankind that when an injury is voluntary, it is faulty, without any consideration of what there might be previously to determine the futurition of the evil act of the will. And it really teaches this as much to those that object and cavil most as to others, as their universal practice shows, by which it appears that such objections are insincere and perverse. Men will mention others' corrupt nature when they are injured as a thing that aggravates their crime, and that wherein their faultiness partly consists. How common is it for persons, when they look on themselves greatly injured by another, to inveigh against him and aggravate his baseness by saying, He is a man of a most perverse spirit. He is naturally of a selfish, niggardly, or proud and haughty temper. He is one of a base and vile disposition. And yet man's natural and corrupt dispositions are mentioned as an excuse for them, with respect to their sins against God, as if they rendered them blameless. 2. That it is just with God eternally to cast off wicked men may more abundantly appear if we consider how much sin they are guilty of. From what has been already said, it appears that if men were guilty of sin but in one particular, that is sufficient ground of their eternal rejection and condemnation. If they are sinners, that is enough. Merely this, might be sufficient to keep them from ever lifting up their heads, and cause them to smite on their breasts, with the publican that cried, God be merciful to me a sinner. But sinful men are full of sin, full of principles and acts of sin. Their guilt is like great mountains, heaped one upon another, till the pile is grown up to heaven. They are totally corrupt in every part, in all their faculties, and all the principles of their nature, their understandings and wills, and in all their dispositions and affections their heads their hearts are totally depraved all the members of their bodies are only instruments of sin and all their senses seeing hearing tasting etc are only inlets and outlets of sin channels of corruption there is nothing but sin no good at all romans 7:18 in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing there is all manner of wickedness There are the seeds of the greatest and blackest crimes. There are principles of all sorts of wickedness against men, and there is all wickedness against God. There is pride, there is enmity, there is contempt, there is quarreling, there is atheism, there is blasphemy. There are these things in exceeding strength. The heart is under the power of them, is sold under sin, and is a perfect slave to it. There is hard-heartedness, hardness greater than that of a rock or an adamant stone. There is obstinacy and perverseness, incorrigibleness and inflexibleness in sin, that will not be overcome by threatenings or promises, by awakenings or encouragements, by judgments or mercies, neither by that which is terrifying nor that which is winning. The very blood of God our Savior will not win the heart of a wicked man. And there are actual wickednesses without number or measure, There are breaches of every command in thought, word, and deed, a life full of sin, days and nights filled up with sin, mercies abused and frowns despised, mercy and justice and all the divine perfections trampled on, and the honor of each person in the Trinity trod in the dirt. Now if one sinful word or thought has so much evil in it as to deserve eternal destruction, how do they deserve to be eternally cast off and destroyed That are guilty of so much sin. 2. If with man's sinfulness we consider God's sovereignty, it may serve further to clear God's justice in the eternal rejection and condemnation of sinners from men's cavils and objections. I shall not now pretend to determine precisely what things are and what things are not proper acts and exercises of God's holy sovereignty, but only that God's sovereignty extends to the following things. 1. That such is God's sovereign power and right that he is originally under no obligation to keep men from sinning, but may in his providence permit and leave them to sin. He was not obliged to keep either angels or men from falling. It is unreasonable to suppose that God should be obliged if he makes a reasonable creature capable of knowing his will and receiving a law from him and being subject to his moral government at the same time to make it impossible for him to sin or break his law. For if God be obliged to this, it destroys all use of any commands, laws, promises or threatenings, and the very notion of any moral government of God over those reasonable creatures. For to what purpose would it be for God to give such and such laws, and declare his holy will to a creature, and annex promises and threatenings to move him to his duty, and make him careful to perform it, if the creature at the same time has this to think of, that God is obliged to make it impossible for him to break his laws. How can God's threatenings move to care or watchfulness, when at the same time God is obliged to render it impossible that he should be exposed to the threatenings? Or to what purpose is it for God to give a law at all? For according to this supposition, it is God and not the creature that is under the law. It is the lawgiver's care and not the subject's, to see that his law is obeyed. And this care is what the lawgiver is absolutely obliged to. If God be obliged never to permit a creature to fall, there is an end of all divine laws or government or authority of God over the creature. There can be no manner of use in these things. God may permit sin, though the being of sin will certainly ensue on that permission. And so, by permission, he may dispose and order the event. If there were any such thing as chance or mere contingence, and the very notion of it did not carry a gross absurdity, as might easily be shown that it does, it would have been very unfit that God should have left it to mere chance, whether man should fall or no. For chance, if there should be any such thing, is undesigning and blind. And certainly it is more fit that an event of so great importance, and that is attended with such an infinite train of so great consequences, should be disposed and ordered by infinite wisdom, than that it should be left to blind chance. If it be said that God need not have interposed to render it impossible for man to sin, and yet not leave it to mere contingence or blind chance neither, but might have left it with man's free will to determine whether to sin or no, I answer, if God did leave it to man's free will without any sort of disposal or ordering, or rather adequate cause, in the case, whence it should be previously certain how that free will should determine, and then still that first determination of the will must be merely contingent or by chance. It could not have any antecedent act of the will to determine it, for I speak now of the very first act of motion of the will, respecting the affair that may be looked upon as the prime ground and highest source of the event." To suppose this to be determined by a foregoing act is a contradiction. God's disposing this determination of the will by his permission does not at all infringe the liberty of the creature. It is in no respect any more inconsistent with liberty than mere chance or contingence. For if the determination of the will be from blind, undesigning chance, it is no more from the agent itself or from the will itself than if we suppose, in the case, A wise, divine disposal by permission. 2. It was fit that it should be at the ordering of the divine wisdom and good pleasure whether any particular man should stand for himself, or whether the first father of mankind should be appointed as the moral and federal head and representative of the rest. If God has not liberty in this matter to determine either of these two as he pleases, it must be because determining that the first father of men should represent the rest, and not that every one should stand for himself, is injurious to mankind. For if it be not injurious, how is it unjust? But it is not injurious to mankind, for there is nothing in the nature of the case itself that makes it better that each man should stand for himself than that all should be represented by their common father, as the least reflection or consideration will convince any one and if there be nothing in the nature of the thing that makes the former better for mankind than the latter, then it will follow that they are not hurt in God's choosing and appointing the latter rather than the former, or, which is the same thing, that it is not injurious to mankind. 3. When men are fallen and become sinful, God by his sovereignty has a right to determine about their redemption as he pleases. He has a right to determine whether he will redeem any or not, He might, if he had pleased, have left all to perish, or might have redeemed all, or he may redeem some and leave others, and if he doth so, he may take whom he pleases and leave whom he pleases. To suppose that all have forfeited his favor and deserved to perish, and to suppose that he may not leave any one individual of them to perish, implies a contradiction, because it supposes that such a one has a claim to God's favor, and is not justly liable to perish, which is contrary to the supposition. It is meet that God should order all these things according to his own pleasure. By reason of his greatness and glory, by which he is infinitely above all, he is worthy to be sovereign, and that his pleasure should in all things take place. He is worthy that he should make himself his end, and that he should make nothing but his own wisdom his rule in pursuing that end, without asking leave or counsel of any, and without giving account of any of his matters. It is fit that he who is absolutely perfect, and infinitely wise, and the fountain of all wisdom, should determine everything that he effects by his own will, even things of the greatest importance. It is meet that he should be thus sovereign, because he is the first being, the eternal being, whence all other beings are. He is the creator of all things and all are absolutely and universally dependent on him, and therefore it is meet that he should act as the sovereign possessor of heaven and earth. Application In the improvement of this doctrine, I would chiefly direct myself to sinners who are afraid of damnation in a use of conviction. This may be a matter of conviction to you that it would be just and righteous with God eternally to reject and destroy you. This is what you are in danger of. You who are a Christless sinner are a poor condemned creature. God's wrath still abides upon you, and the sentence of condemnation lies upon you. You are in God's hands, and it is uncertain what he will do with you. You are afraid what will become of you. You are afraid that it will be your portion to suffer eternal burnings, and your fears are not without grounds. You have reason to tremble every moment. But be you never so much afraid of it, Let eternal damnation be never so dreadful, yet it is just. God may nevertheless do it, and be righteous and holy and glorious. Though eternal damnation be what you cannot bear, and how much soever your heart shrinks at the thought of it, yet God's justice may be glorious in it. The dreadfulness of the thing on your part, and the greatness of your dread of it, do not render it the less righteous on God's part. If you think otherwise, it is a sign that you do not see yourself, that you are not sensible what sin is, nor how much of it you have been guilty of. Therefore, for your conviction, be directed, first, to look over your past life, inquire at the mouth of conscience, and hear what that has to say concerning it. Consider what you are, what light you have had, and what means you have lived under, and yet how you have behaved yourself. What have those many days and nights you have lived been filled up with? How have those years that have rolled over your heads, one after another, been spent? What has the sun shone upon you for, from day to day, while you have improved his light to serve Satan by it? What has God kept your breath in your nostrils for, and given you meat and drink, that you have spent your life and strength supported by them, in opposing God and rebellion against him? How many sorts of wickedness have you not been guilty of? How manifold have been the abominations of your life? What profaneness and contempt of God has been exercised by you? How little regard have you had to the scriptures, to the word preached, to sabbaths and to sacraments? How profanely have you talked, many of you, about these things that are holy? After what manner have many of you kept God's holy day, not regarding the holiness of the time? not caring what you thought of in it. Yea, you have not only spent the time in worldly, vain, and unprofitable thoughts, but in immoral thoughts, pleasing yourself with the reflection on past acts of wickedness and in contriving new acts. Have not you spent much holy time in gratifying your lusts in your imaginations, yea, not only holy time, but the very time of God's public worship, when you have appeared in God's more immediate presence? How have you not only attended the worship, but have in the meantime been feasting your lusts and wallowing yourself in abominable uncleanliness? How many Sabbaths have you spent, one after another, in a most wretched manner? Some of you not only in worldly and wicked thoughts, but also a very wicked outward behavior. When you on Sabbath days have got along with your wicked companions, how has holy time been treated among you? What kind of conversation has there been? Yea, how have some of you, by a very indecent carriage, openly dishonored and cast contempt on the sacred services of God's house and holy day? And what have you done, some of you alone? What wicked practices have there been in secret, even in holy time? God in your own consciences know. And how have you behaved yourself in the time of family prayer? And what a trade many of you made of absenting yourselves from the worship of the families you belong to, for the sake of vain company! And how have you continued in the neglect of secret prayer, therein willfully living in a known sin, going abreast against as plain a command as any in the Bible? Have you not been one that has cast off fear and restrained prayer before God? What wicked carriage have some of you been guilty of towards your parents, How far have you been from paying that honor to them which God has required? Have you not even harbored ill will and malice towards them? And when they have displeased you, have wished evil to them? Yea, and shown your vile spirit in your behavior. And it is well if you have not mocked them behind their backs, and, like the cursed Ham and Canaan, as it were, derided your parents' nakedness instead of covering it and hiding your eyes from it, have not some of you often disobeyed your parents, yea, and refused to be subject to them? Is it not a wonder of mercy and forbearance, that the proverb has not before now been accomplished on you, Proverbs 30:17. The eye that mocketh at his father, and refuseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. What revenge and malice have you been guilty of towards your neighbors? How have you indulged this spirit of the devil, hating others, and wishing evil to them, rejoicing when evil befell them, and grieving at others' prosperity, and lived in such a way for a long time? Have not some of you allowed a passionate, furious spirit, and behaved yourselves in your anger more like wild beasts than like Christians? What covetousness has been in many of you! Such has been your inordinate love of the world, and care about the things of it, that it has taken up your heart. You have allowed no room for God and religion. You have minded the world more than your eternal salvation. For the vanities of the world, you have neglected reading, praying, and meditation. For the things of the world, you have broken the Sabbath. For the world, you have spent a great deal of your time in quarreling. For the world, you have envied and hated your neighbor. For the world, you have cast God and Christ and heaven behind your back. For the world you have sold your own soul. You have, as it were, drowned your soul in worldly cares and desires. You have been a mere earthworm that is never in its element but when groveling and buried in the earth. How much of a spirit of pride has appeared in you which is in a peculiar manner the spirit and condemnation of the devil? How have some of you vaunted yourselves in your apparel, others in your riches, others in their knowledge and abilities? How has it galled you to see others above you? How much has it gone against the grain for you to give others their due honour? And how have you shown your pride by setting up your wills and in opposing others, and stirring up and promoting division and a party spirit in public affairs? How sensual you have been! Are there not some here that have debased themselves below the dignity of human nature by wallowing in sensual filthiness, as swine in the mire, or as filthy vermin feeding with delight on rotten carrion? What intemperance have some of you been guilty of? How much of your precious time have you spent at the tavern, and in drinking companies, when you ought to have been at home seeking God and your salvation in your families and closets? And what abominable lasciviousness have some of you been guilty of? How have you managed to indulge yourself from day to day, and from night to night, in all manner of unclean imaginations? Has not your soul been filled with them till it has become a hold of foul spirits and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird? What foul-mouthed persons have some of you been, often in lewd and lascivious talk and unclean songs, wherein were things not fit to be spoken? And such company, where such conversation has been carried on, has been your delight. And with what unclean acts and practices have you defiled yourself, God and your own consciences know what abominable lasciviousness you have practiced in things not fit to be named, when you have been alone, when you ought to have been reading or meditating or on your knees before God in secret prayer, and how have you corrupted others as well as polluted yourselves? What vile uncleanness have you practiced in company? What abominations have you been guilty of in the dark? such as the Apostle doubtless had respect to in Ephesians 5.12, for it is a shame even to speak of those things that are done of them in secret. Some of you have corrupted others and done what in you lay to undo their souls, if you have not actually done it, and by your vile practices and example have made room for Satan, invited his presence, and established his interest in the town where you have lived. What lying some of you have been guilty of, especially in your childhood? And have not your heart and lips often disagreed since you came to riper years? What fraud and deceit and unfaithfulness have many of you practiced in your own dealings with your neighbors, of which your own heart is conscious, if you have not been noted by others? And how some of you behaved yourselves in your family relations? How have you neglected your children's souls? and not only so, but have corrupted their minds by your bad examples, and instead of training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, have rather brought them up in the devil's service. How have some of you attended that sacred ordinance of the Lord's Supper without any manner of serious preparation, and in a careless slighty frame of spirits, and chiefly to comply with custom? Have you not ventured to put the sacred symbols of the body and blood of Christ into your mouth, while at the same time you have lived in ways of known sins, and intended no other than still to go on in the same wicked practices? And, it may be, have sat at the Lord's table with rancor in your heart against some of your brethren that you have sat there with. You have come even to that holy feast of love among God's children with the leaven of malice and envy in your heart, and so have eaten and drank judgment to yourself. What stupidity and sottishness has attended your course of wickedness, which has appeared in your obstinacy under awakening dispensations of God's word and providence? And how have some of you backslidden after you have set out in religion and quenched God's spirit after he had been striving with you? And what unsteadiness and slothfulness and long misimprovement of God's strivings with you have you been chargeable with? Now can you think when you have thus behaved yourself that God is obliged to show you mercy? Are you not, after all this, ashamed to talk of its being hard with God to cast you off? Does it become one who has lived such a life to open his mouth to excuse himself, to object against God's justice in his condemnation, or to complain of it as hard in God not to give him converting and pardoning grace and make him his child and bestow on him eternal life? or to talk of his duties and great pains in religion, as if such performances were worthy to be accepted and to draw God's heart to such a creature. If this has been your manner, does it not show how little you have considered yourself and how little a sense you have had of your own sinfulness? Secondly, be directed to consider, if God should eternally reject and destroy you, what an agreeableness and exact mutual answerableness there would be between God so dealing with you and your spirit and behavior. There would not only be an equality, but a similitude. God declares that his dealings with men shall be suitable to their disposition and practice. Psalm 18, 25 and 26, With the merciful man thou wilt show thyself merciful, with an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright, with the pure thou wilt show thyself pure and with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward, quote. How much soever you dread damnation, and are affrighted and concerned at the thoughts of it, yet if God should indeed eternally damn you, you would be met with but in your own way, you would be dealt with exactly according to your own dealing. Surely it is but fair that you should be made to buy in the same measure in which you sell. End of section 26.